and welcome to the Wing Women podcast, hosted by best mates and journalists, Frankie Graddon, that's me, and Charlie Gowans Eglinton, that's her. Good morning, Chaz. Morning, Franks. Well, that was a bit musical, sorry about that. <laughs> How are you, my darling? I'm all right, I'm in dreary old London. How are you? Well, I'm in sunny old Devon, sorry to uh, rub that in. It is glorious, wall-to-wall sunshine, blue skies, blue seas... It is heaven in Devon. I am so happy for you, she says through gritted teeth. (laughs) (laughs) You're wearing a chic nautical stripe this morning. You've got beach hair. It's a whole vibe. When in Rome, dressed for the occasion, I've gone very Breton heavy down here. And denim and Breton, that's my wardrobe of choice. Went staycationing, made a fateful error and only packed sandals not trainers. Don't know what I was doing. I know better. I've been to Devon enough times to know that trainers is the one. Fortunately, I've got a pair of walking boots that I've been wearing. So my pedicure was unnecessary. Mm. Not say anything with a staycation. Mm-hmm. Do not need your nails doing. <laughs> Charlie's just looking at her nails. Inspecting. Well, I had a mani-pedi because I was being photographed for work and I hadn't had a pedicure this summer or last summer. So that was going strong. I actually felt very apologetic for the woman who was trying to turn them back into feet. But I chose the colour in the fluorescence thinking it was like a great orange, like that peach daiquiri I got last time I got a manicure. And then I went outside and I was like, this is pink. Oh no, do you not like it? No. Oh, no, I like it. I've got it on hands and feet. It's like a pepper pig colour. It's not. <laughs> it's not pepper pig. No, across the Zoom screen, it looks very peachy. And it looks like it's the kind of peach that makes you look a bit more tanned, you know? Well, the colour name is something like getting a tangerine, as in tan, but tangerine. Yeah. So it's supposed to be tangerine orange, which is an orange. Pantastic. OPI, if that is your real name. But... I feel like this is pink. Anyway. I'm so sorry for you. What have you been doing in Devon, please? So what are we doing? Lots of big walks. Lots of shandies in the pub. Took Alf to the swing parks. He loves it. Adrenaline junkie. (laughs) Today we're off to Cornwall. Are you? We're off to Foy Hall Hotel, which I'm so excited about. I paid for everything, by the way. This has been no waste bond. But I'm just really excited to tell you about it because... It's part of this hotel group, which is all about running luxury hotels, but are family friendly. I mean, there are so many buggers about going on holiday with kids. The luggage, to name but one, if anyone read my column. My heart bleeds. It bleeds. (laughs) (laughs) I know first world problems, but it is an arse and a half getting a kid on holiday. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Often, if you gravitate towards a family-friendly establishment, it might not be as luxe or refined. The taste level might not be there. But this group of hotels is super swanky luxe, but it's all catered towards kids. For example, there are already travel cots in the room, so you don't need to take one. The rooms are rigged up with monitors, so parents can go and have a proper meal in the restaurant at dinner time and you can watch your child sleep, etc. There's kids' books in the library. Shit like that. Makes my heart sing-a-ling-a-ling because I haven't had to wave goodbye to my quality-controlled holidays. Glorious. So it's in voice. I'm also going to hit up North Street Kitchen, which is the Cornish sibling of our beloved Jolene in Newington Green and Premier, also in Newington Green. Home from home. Home from home. I'm going to have some oysters. I've told Ben I'm going to have six oysters. I haven't had any forever because I couldn't have any when I was pregnanto and it just hasn't really been the occasion to have them since having Alfie. So I'm going to chug some oysters down. Oh, 
Yum. I, I actually went for a really delicious seafood lunch on Saturday. Where? The cow in Notting Hill. Oh, yeah. It was so yummy. Was it a fouille de mer platter? Mm, oysters and prawns and... Uh, I mean, I'm falling off my seat. There was molto fouille de mer. Yeah. The mer was all over my fucking plate. <laughs> <laughs> and really cold white wine. Mm, delicious. What should we talk about this week? Should we talk about the Euros? Mm. Did you watch it? I put it on in the background because I felt like I should watch it because it was a water cooler moment, but I don't like football. And then every time I heard cheering or a loud shout, I rewound the live show by a few minutes and then watched the goal that had happened. Nice. Yeah, a true supporter there. I sort of did a similar thing. I watched the first half and then nerves got the better of me and I had to go and sit in the bedroom, but with the door open so that I could sort of hear what was happening. Right. I just found being in the same room too tense. It's so stressful. Obviously, it didn't end how we wanted to, but good game. I think it's amazing they got to the final, no? Well, what I didn't understand in the coverage of it The next day, all the front pages were like, oh, it still hurts and tears before bedtime and all of that shit. And it was like we massively messed up and we'd lost, but we were second in the Euros. England hasn't always been second worthy. And I just thought it was nuts that we just instantly went, oh, no, we didn't win. Therefore, it was all such a big disaster. And I hate that. It was so negative. It really revealed us as a country of really bad losers. I thought. No one was like, but that was fun anyway. And at least we got to be in the final. Yeah. And then obviously, while we were winning, it was the English team. And then as soon as we lost, it was the black players who were suddenly being racially abused. Marcus Rashford's mural was defaced. But now I've been covered with all those lovely notes from supporters. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't have had to have been covered because it shouldn't have been defaced. But... The signs and the supporters that have turned out to congregate around there as sort of a marker of support and a show of unity against racism. It's sad, isn't it? Because you're sort of not surprised, but it's just so sickening to see it all. And you just think, my God, those guys, they just work their absolute socks off, are feeling shit anyway. And to have that on top of it, I just think it's absolutely inexcusable. I think we knew it was coming because the media coverage, there's actual direct comparisons of when a white player buys their mum a house. It's, isn't that amazing? What a family guy. Boy done good. When a black player does it, it's, oh, this is disgusting. He's earning so much money. We're in the middle of a recession and he's flashing his cash around. Their whole treatment over details like that has been ridiculous, let alone over taking the knee. And actually, Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson's reaction to taking the knee and then saying, this is disgusting, no one should be racially abused. But really, they laid the foundations for that. Mm. It's everywhere. And it's just a shame because I think it was so positive that this team was such a product of immigration Mm. and was uniting people but obviously for a lot of football fans that only went as deep as if we're winning we'll accept you but if we're losing we won't yeah I am not a massive football fan I don't follow the sport closely but even from someone who isn't entrenched in it I could see that the team this year with Gareth Southgate they've been such a stand-up bunch you know they've really been the sporting heroes that we want and we need 
as you said, they've taken the knee. Harry Kane has worn his pride rainbow striped captain's armband. Marcus Rashford doing all that amazing work for free school dinners during lockdown. They're so charitable. They conduct themselves in such a way that we haven't seen so much before. If you think of football teams gone by, it was bad behaviour. It was shagging around. It was lariness. It was huge spending. It was almost their talent excused poor behaviour. Whereas this team, we're seeing them using their platform for good. And I think we in this country maybe don't have so many role models that we can look up to. There's issues with the royal family, there's issues with the government. Sometimes you think, who can we look to as a sort of beacon of morality? And I think the England team have definitely been that. Certainly coming out of what's been a really stressful, horrible pandemic 15 months. So for it to end sourly is such a shame. But the way that the team has reacted and gathered around these three players has just shown what a great bunch they are. And I think we're very lucky to have them at the moment. Is that a bit gushy towards the England team? Did we just start a football podcast? (laughs) Come back next week for some more phenomenal sports coverage. We should do the tennis next. Well, look, it's the Tokyo Olympics soon. We could do a bit of Olympic commentary. Can I shotgun the gymnastic bit? I really vibe off that. It's also the one that I watch that I'm like, I wonder if I would have been good at that. I like the one with, I don't think this is part of the Olympic programme, but you know when they have the ribbon on the stick, I'm wiggling my hand across the screen. Oh my God. I don't know what stick ribboning is called. I don't know what the official name for that is. I can't imagine that it's in the Olympics. Shame. Oh, I always wanted to do that when I was younger. Slash also still now. (laughs) Of course, there is the other side effect to the football loss as well. And I was really shocked by that domestic violence statistic. Yes, the statistics from 2018, when England plays, domestic violence increases by 26%. When they lose, it jumps up to 38%, which is staggering. Awful. Whenever I watch England lose. That is the first thing I think about. It's that hooligan culture, which I don't know if we have that in other countries, but I think that's such a massive turnoff of football in the UK or in England, I should say, is that there is that loutish behaviour that I think at one end of the spectrum is banter and catcalling and girls won't understand the offside rule, rah, 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 and that sort of locker room chat. But then at the other end of the spectrum, it's domestic abuse. There was a great piece on the stack written by Emma Louise Boynton, And it's called If England Gets Beaten, So Will She. And it's a look at that toxic masculinity that exists around football and the violence against women that so often that it perpetuates. And she talks about how it's been entrenched within the game for such a long time. So in the piece, Emma speaks to Kaz May, who is the founder of Women in Football, which is a network dedicated to championing female talent in the football industry. And Kaz says, many women have had the classic get back to the kitchen line thrown their way when trying to have a well-reasoned debate on a game of football. We've had men use derogatory misogynistic terms in response to a football opinion. Sometimes it will even go as personal as to attack our body image and more specifically our female body parts. It's condescending and welcoming and hurtful. So that's talking about the misogynistic behaviour towards women who are within the football community. So Kaz continues, 
The culture of banter in football that casually normalises misogyny and racism and homophobia too becomes enabled by the fact it's so difficult to vocalise your objections to it, to challenge it, she tells me over the phone. But in normalising such attitudes and behaviours, it rarefies the fact that the space is for certain individuals and not others. It's inherently exclusionary. So even women within the football community are experiencing that. The whole thing is wrapped in this giant misogynistic attitude. I have a couple of friends who are Chelsea season ticket holders and became that because their dads were Chelsea season ticket holders and they went with them as children and continue to do so. So I've gone a couple of times with them and I can see the fun I can see the joy I can see the excitement and I can see the camaraderie and they sit in the same place always so there's that little old man over there who's been coming for 70 years and sitting in that seat and they know all the people who sit around them by name and I can see that it is a community that a lot of people get a lot from but on the whole if you walk into a pub where there's football on It takes over and it's expected to be everyone's priority. And I don't think that other supporters of other sports behave like that. If you were going to the loo in a pub and you walk across the screen and the football's on, you're going to get someone shouting something at you. And when I walk home, because I live quite near Arsenal, I try to avoid it, but sometimes I haven't realised that it's on and I'm walking through football crowds. And they are a bit bargy especially if they've lost. They're a bit angry and shouting at people on the street and there's often rubbish or something being broken or just destruction for the sake of destruction. And I've had moments where I haven't felt comfortable on a street knowing that they've lost a match. I can't even imagine what that would feel like if actually one of those men were your partner and you knew that if their team lost, they were going to be coming home angry. Mm. It's a terrifying thought. And I think that's why I've always veered away from partners who are very keen football fans. Obviously, I'm not saying all football fans are domestic abusers, but it's an area that I don't really want to go near. Well, I mean, there's widespread racism through the football community. I think black players in particular, players of colour are often getting racial slurs shouted at them from sidelines. You hear about that all the time in the UK. Even at the final, there were thousands of people who pushed through security. And I've read accounts in the papers about this. And it was quite unsafe and people were angry and pushy. And by one account, they were threatening the people who did actually have tickets saying, don't say anything, don't snitch on us. It's just such a shame that what could have been this amazing kind of national moment for us to all enjoy gets ruined and then to the rest of the world who obviously already hate the UK anyway although I shouldn't say the UK I should say England because that is really who the rest of the world hates and obviously I don't think Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland were rooting for England in the final anyway but for the headlines to be racism domestic violence people pushing through in Wembley and threatening stewards, the mess in Leicester Square and everywhere, the destruction. And for that to be what we're presenting to the world, ugh, is my informed journalistic view. Ugh, that's how I feel about it. No, I share your view. I share your view. And not football specific, but actually, this brings me to a piece that I wanted to talk about this week, which is by Vicky Spratt in Refinery29 and it came out a couple of weeks ago and I bookmarked it and it's just really resonated with me. The piece is, in 2021, how are women supposed to be with men? And it's talking about dating now, it's talking about relationships now, it's talking about power balances. In the context of where we are now, in the context of 
Me Too in the context of consent conversations that we're having more and more frequently, in the context of the domestic violence numbers and the violence against women. And I'm also reading this at the same time as thinking about Sarah Everard, the guilty plea came this week. Vicky talks about how to be intimate. We have to be vulnerable. We have to make ourselves vulnerable. You can't have all your walls up and create intimacy with a person. But to be a woman and to allow yourself to be vulnerable is to be making yourself unsafe. And it feels like that. She talks about in dating for her and her friends, now that they're in their 30s, some of them are now out earning the men that they're going on dates with. And that power balance is skewing slightly. And the difference that makes as well, because I think when you're in your 20s, the gender pay gap, and also the fact that I used to date older men in my 20s, meant that certainly the earning power balance was they were always earning more than me. They were always in that above position. That's a real adjustment to have to make, because certainly in my 20s, when I was dating older guys they do know more they have been to more restaurants on more holidays and they're teaching you things I find that really difficult dating in your 30s because a lot of men don't respond well to success or to confidence and to feeling confident about what you do and not just going into a room being awed by them and Vicky talks about these two terms heteropessimism and heterofatalism she describes those as regret, embarrassment or hopelessness about the straight experience. And it's a regret almost to be part of the straight experience and that we can't choose differently, that those are our wants and desires and who you're attracted to. But how do we even navigate that now? And I feel like every day when I open my phone and I read some new headline about men or about women's pleasure or about rape or about consent or another attack... It does just make me think, oh, how can I? How can I go and meet a stranger in a park Mm. and sit on a bench? And do you think that the past year has affected all of this in terms of the lockdown? Has that played into all of this sense of feeling like you're finding it hard to see how you can navigate dating now? I think it's the moment. It's been snowballing. And as I said, Me Too and TV shows, even like Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You and Emerald Fennell's film, Promising Young Woman, and the discussions that we're having, which I think are so important to have. But I think for me and... For a few women I know, it's kind of giving name to things that we have buried or not talked about. And Olivia Petter, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, has been writing about stealthing, which is what happened in I May Destroy You, when a man removes a condom during sex without consent. And she wrote about it and then she wrote a follow-up piece, both in The Times, because she had this reaction to her article, all of these women saying... I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have a way to express it. I didn't feel that it was a valid experience, a valid trauma, because it could have been worse, because I had given consent for the sex part. There are so many degrees of sexual assault that I think for a lot of women, you look at your experience and think, well, I wasn't violently raped and beaten up, so is my experience valid? And I think the last year 
has felt for me anyway, like we've started to give name to some of the things that we don't talk about. And we've started to talk about them. And I think that's really important and really powerful that we're talking about these things now. But it does, with so much of it kind of all around, make it very difficult to then even consider dating and to not have that skew the way you feel. Not about male friends and family who you know and trust, but... Mm. to not have that colour your view of somebody but I don't know how I could walk into a room and sit down with a stranger and just feel really open and comfortable to just try and have a great conversation and find out more about them and not immediately be a bit guarded not immediately wonder if you're safe wonder who this guy is wonder what decisions he would make in the past and I end up I think sort of grilling men to try and find out how they feel about things how they feel about consent whether or not they call themselves feminists where they stand on so many of these things because it's a constant in my mind now in a way that I don't think it was two years ago not to bring Love Island into everything Mm. but there was an interesting moment that happened with one of the couples where she reacted to something that had offended her that another of the guys had said. He said one of his biggest turn-offs were fake girls, girls that are fake and girls that look fake. And, I mean, probably not the thing to say in Love Island when everyone's had a bit of this, that and the other. But quite rightly, the women were very upset with him and said, you might say, oh, I'm not attracted to girls with fake boobs. But they pointed out that he hadn't thought to ask or why women feel the need to get boob jobs, injections, Botox. He hadn't put the fact that there are such strict, narrow beauty standards for women. He hadn't associated that with them, why we feel the need to alter ourselves. So she reacted to that, but not unreasonably so. You know, she called him out and she was visibly pissed off. But then she went to have a constructive conversation with him and he took on board what she was saying and it was kind of resolved. But meanwhile, her partner was sort of like, I can't deal with... An angry woman. Exactly. I just want a chill girl. This sort of chill phrase kept being banded around and quite a few of the other guys were agreeing. And it's like, you don't want a chill girl. What you want is someone who will sit down and shut up. You want someone that looks pretty, that will just sit there and not speak their minds, which is rich because when they all come in and they do their entry videos, they're all like, yeah, I just want an independent woman who knows her own mind. And it's like, well, actually you don't. When you were talking about that power shift well when women do stand up and say something and do it actually in a very constructive way all right there might have been a bit of liveliness at the beginning but it all resolved itself very well and I think certainly taught this guy a lesson in banding around the word fake it was just so interesting and so depressing because these are kids in their late teens early 20s and I think I certainly have a lot of hope for Gen Z and think, yes, they're doing things differently. They are talking about sexuality and gender and they aren't putting up with so much stuff that has gone on before them and they are challenging the status quo. And I know the Love Island contestants are a small cross-section, but it was just like, oh God, we're still in this thing of, I don't want a woman to speak her mind. And I thought, ugh, that just is depressing. And I can imagine going into the dating pool and thinking, ugh, And I don't think anybody wants, or very few people, enjoy those 
arguments or those conversations, you know, they can turn out well. And as you say, you can change somebody's mind. But I doubt she really wanted to have a confrontation with someone because it is stressful. But she's not doing it to create drama. And I think that is a really frustrating trope when you're a woman. That whenever you say anything, you're being the difficult woman. You can't ever raise anything without you not being cool or chill. It's the cool girl as well that is held against us at all times and used as a way to silence women. And actually, funny that you should say what they just want is someone who shuts up because I read a piece... And I haven't been watching Love Island, but I have actually dipped into two episodes this week after reading this piece in Grazia by Hattie Crissell called We'll Take Good Chat Over a Six Pack. Hattie wrote about these two contestants, Brad and Chloe, were having a conversation. And Hattie outlines Brad talking about his favourite coffee shop back home. So not riveting essential stuff. Anyway, that conversation ends... And then Chloe comes away from it afterwards and realises that he didn't ask her a single question. And she's never had a conversation like that with a man where he didn't ask a single question. And the next time they speak, she says to him, you need to ask more questions. And I think he says, oh, so what's your story? Or something equally vague. But it is remarkable that this is a dating show and that it wouldn't have occurred to a man to ask a woman a question in the context of a dating show. And I have moaned about this at length, that I will go on dates with men who don't ask a single question and they just answer your questions. And I have that story that I'm sure I would have told on the podcast about me being a wedding grenade and being seated next to this guy at a rehearsal dinner who I sat next to for two hours and just asked him questions politely. And he never asked me one back. He just monologued. And by the time dessert came round, I just let him have it and said, this isn't acceptable. I'm not here to facilitate you listening to the sound of your own voice. I'm not here as a prompt. T-Right. This isn't your one-man show. You need to ask questions. And he said, oh, well, I mean, but you were asking me questions. And it's, yeah, it's how conversation works, pal. It wouldn't be impolite for me to just, in a silence, be like, did I ever tell you about the time? (laughs) I've never met this guy before. But it is something I find constantly in dating, that they don't ask you a question. And I thought it was hilarious that that has now happened in Love Island. Hilarious and depressing. Yes. And so for that reason, I know it will be disappointing to my fans, but I will not be appearing on Love Island 2022. It was a difficult decision for me to make. We'll get in touch with them and let them know that I'm going to turn down the offer they didn't make for me to appear on Love Island 2022. Oh, yeah. The fans are devastated. I know it's a shame. I would like to see older people on Love Island. I do think it would be interesting. Oh my God, yes. Right. I mean, obviously it'd be nice to just see some older bods on TV in swimwear. I'd quite like to see that. But it would be interesting to see how the relationships play out, whether the guys just aren't given the time of day. Because that is probably the nice thing about growing older. You are less tolerant of shit like that. Mm. Also, ageing fuckboys, I would really like to see because i think they're such a specific niche aren't they the problem is i don't know where you get the age bracket because aging fuckboys don't date women their own age so they'd still want like the 21 year olds yes maybe their faces would fall as a cluster of 35 year old women walked in oh for sure they want natural but only natural (laughs) pre-25 exactly 
<laughs> Past that, Fake's probably the preference. Oh, hmm. So, have you got a recommendation this week? I do have a recommendation. I have a great podcast to listen to. It's called In Your Company, and this is a podcast series by Tegi Wagba, who is a journalist and author of We Need to Talk About Money, which was out last week. It's all about her personal relationship with money, but also society's relationship with women and money. This podcast series is off the back of that. And in this episode, it's one of the most recent episodes, she talks to Anne Friedman, who's also a journalist and co-host of the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, which if it's not on your podcast radar, you should pop it on there because it is great. Call Your Girlfriend's very soothing to listen to. And actually, so is in good company. Otega has got a voice of silk. It's heaven. The conversation is about money relating to specifically self-employed money. Interesting. Which obviously resonated being self-employed and just sort of navigating that and things like setting day rates and asking for more money and, you know, all of those sort of sticky bits when you're self-employed that you come across that shouldn't be sticky because we're all working for money. We're not all working for the fun of it. So it shouldn't be hard to talk about money. And yet it is. One of the bits I particularly liked is when Anne Friedman says that she doesn't call herself freelance and she hates the term freelance because it sort of has connotations of being carefree and just falling into things. And she's saying as a self-employed person, you're actually grafting and you're planning and you're constructing a career. And it's not that you're just skipping from one commission to another that just lands into your lap. It's hard work. So to give it the gravitas of being self-employed is actually preferable to this sort of freelance idea, which I think people have of you sit in cafes and swan about and do daytime yoga classes. And I have done both of those things, but I've also worked very hard. I just thought it was very interesting and I enjoyed it very much. Fabulous. I'll give it a listen. Yeah. And then just a quick other one. It's on Airmail, which Charlie's featured on. You absolutely international superstar. But this is founded by Graydon Carter, who's ex-Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. And it's a collection of the best of the internet and some original pieces, I think, as well. You can sign up to the newsletter, but you can also go on the website via their Instagram and read pieces. But it repurposed this piece from the 70s and it's called Before Studio 54, There Was Maxwell's Plum. And it's by a writer called John Bradshaw, who in the intro, it says that he was the self-styled Indiana Jones of journalism. I don't know what that means, but I love it. Back in the, I guess, 70s, 80s, 90s. And it's probably because we're looking back on it and we didn't actually experience it. But the world of journalism felt like it was full of these sort of glamorous, enigma type writers. It felt much more mysterious and less sort of everyday-ish of the world of journalism that we're used to. But anyway, John Bradshaw, he goes to visit this cafe or this restaurant called Maxwell's Plum, which is in New York on the east side. And it was one of the original hotspots where it was a real melting pot of society. The street that it was on was where what they were referred to back then as air hostesses lived. So the piece talks about having all these glamorous women in their uniforms come in and nurses and receptionists and then 
people from the Bronx would come and Queens would come and society figures would drop in. And it was just this mad mix of people. And it sounded like it was really ram-packed and quite sweaty and quite horny. And I think eating was probably the last thing on everybody's mind. And because life has been so remote recently, it was nice to read about somewhere where everybody just got in there and got a bit grimy. Mm. It was glamorous and sexy and great. We went to the pub the other day for a drink and it was table service and it was socially distanced and it was exciting to be back in the pub and brilliant but I did think I'd really love to be forcing my way to the bar through a crowd and everyone's kind of pressed against each other and you're fighting for your space to have your drink and it would also be great if that room was filled with like beautiful and fabulous and glamorous people. Yeah. I'd like to go there in my time capsule, please. And while I'm there, perhaps find out how I can be the self-styled Indiana Jones of journalism. <laughs> Maybe you could just start wearing a hat. <laughs> but my recommendation this week actually shows the glory days of journalism are continuing in some places, just not here. Mine is an interview that I read in New York magazine, the latest issue, by E. Alex Young, who has interviewed Jennifer Coolidge. Oh my God, amazing. I mean, fabulous. But this article, because I'm so used to, and I think you're so used to, and certainly a lot of British journalism is like this, you get an hour with someone. And that's a good interview. You might get an hour or even two over a lunch, or you might be invited into somebody's home and you have a cup of coffee while you interview them. But it's incredibly common with celebrities that you get a short phone interview. I had 12 minutes on the phone with Cher when I interviewed her. I've had five minutes lots. It's like the Notting Hill Hugh Grant thing. You're in a rotating group of journalists who all get sat in a seat and then whisked out of it after five minutes. And the publicist is there or they're also on the Zoom call. And if you ask a question they don't want you to ask, they leap in or they leap in to say, um, actually, so-and-so doesn't want to talk about those projects. Mm. Or, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. And this interview, the journalist spent three days with Jennifer. So went round to her house in the first evening and she did this almost kind of theatrical performance for him. And then they went out for dinner and they're driving together and they go out for breakfast at her favourite breakfast spot And it's just amazing to me that that still exists because I think people are so terrified now of giving too much access, of being too vulnerable. Celebrities are so protected now and people are so careful with what they say. People are terrified of being cancelled, but also people are terrified of losing fans by being outspoken about politics or their point of view on any kind of talking point. So I love reading articles like this where you get to hear about Jennifer Coolidge's home in New Orleans that she has completely renovated and her rescue dog Chewy, short for Chewbacca, by the way, heaven. But the conversations are in the car with her team and it's her reaction to a song she hasn't heard by Olivia Rodrigo on the radio. And then there's a quote from the guy who owns her favourite breakfast spot about his point of view on her and a whole look back at her career. It's such an interesting interview. You should 100% read it. Also, I'm obsessed with this. When she was younger and trying to break in to acting, she was living in New York and she was waitressing 
and going out a lot and partying a lot. And when she couldn't get into clubs, she pretended to be a Hemingway sister that no one had heard of. And she called herself Muffin Hemingway. (laughs) And she once got chucked out of a club and they shouted, don't ever come back here, Muffin. And I love this. Muffin Hemingway. That Muffin Hemingway, a sister that never existed in the Hemingway dynasty, is blacklisted in certain corners of New York. And it's actually Jennifer Coolidge. Isn't that fabulous? That is fabulous. And we couldn't get into parties at Fashion Week when we were 19. We could have been a Delavine. Exactly. I was going to say a Delavine. Were you? I'm not <laughs> sure I could pass as any sort of relation to the glorious <laughs> Delavine sisters. Oh, maybe you could have been like a Delau. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Mm, I can see that for you. Quite tall as well. Missed opportunities. I think you could have been a fifth generation Mitford. That is the nicest thing. It's Frank. You're welcome. Also, do you know Legally Blonde is 20 years old? My goodness. I know I feel like I say this almost every podcast episode, but 20 years old. <laughs> Mad. Elwoods. Icon. Total icon. Jennifer Coolidge. More of an icon. Right. On that bombshell, I've got to go to Cornwall. If you have liked what you've heard, please do rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. And tell you pals. You can also hear more from us via our bi-weekly newsletter, which comes out every other Sunday. Subscribe at thewingwoman.co.uk. You can also find us on social media at Frankie Gradden, at Charlie Gowans, and collectively at thewingwoman underscore. And... And feel free to drop us a line with any comments or questions at thewingwomanofficial at gmail.com. And that's all we've got time for. We'll see you in a fortnight. Until then, bye! <laughs>